0: Well, will turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, as we've been working our way through our Advent series, uh, looking at these Old Testament texts that point us to, um, unveil to us, unwrap for us, if you might think of it that way, different dynamics, aspects of Christ helping us to understand who he is, Uh, The world spun, this globe spun for thousands of years before Christ ever arrived. And across history, God was writing a story, helping people to anticipate, to look forward to, um, to build excitement for the coming Messiah, for Christ. And so Christmas is a wonderful time, uh, in in part even because it helps to build excitement. Uh, And we look forward to, and we are anticipating uh, a particular day or event, or or being together with others, and so it's a good reminder of the way God structured history and time to prepare us. I want to start this morning, even as we're going to talk about Jonah and how he points to Christ. Uh, I want to start this morning, though, about hope and the power of hope is something that's always fascinated and and or amazed me. Um, They've discovered that if you take hope from someone, then they're going to start dying. It's, it's amazing. You've got to keep people at a position of hope and a positive outlook at least a little bit to some degree. Uh, CIA, when they try to get information from folks, they've realized that waterboarding doesn't work as well. Physical torture doesn't work as well. But if you take hope from somebody, they are crushed mentally and they'll tell you whatever you want to know. And so hope is a powerful, powerful thing. Well, let me maybe illustrate it this way. The story is told of a teacher. Um, she was assigned particularly to go to kids in this large city who are in the hospital. And so if you had a child, they're in the hospital. They're going to fall behind in their studies. Um, they would send one of these teachers to go and help and try to bring the child up to speed and help them along. She was assigned to a particular little boy in the hospital, and she was given his room number and instructions. She went to see his teacher. His teacher said, uh, if you could just help him learn nouns and adverbs, that's what we're learning in class. We're afraid he's going to fall behind. So with that information, she went, not knowing that this boy had been in a horrific accident and had been severely burned over most of his body. And so she walked into this hospital room and was immediately struck with this sight. I don't know if you've ever um, been in, in a children's ward of a hospital. Um, my youngest brother spent the first couple weeks of his life in the NICU. Uh, we weren't sure that he was going to make it. Um, I've, I've been with families who have lost children in the hospital. I, I, people who work in NICUs and pediatric wards are heroes in my book. Um, I don't have the emotional stamina to do that. And so this teacher walked in and finds this boy horrifically burned. She gathers herself together. And so she sits down and spends time with him teaching him about nouns and adverbs. Feels rather pointless. (laughs) And she left and went away, came back the next day to go over lessons again. And one of the nurses stopped him and said, what did you do? She said, what do you mean? She said, well, he's a different boy. She said, since yesterday, he has already begun to turn a corner. He is taking his medicine. He is fighting to survive. Um, We were questioning whether he was going to make it. He's a different boy altogether. And this pattern continued, and he ultimately recovered, Uh, was released from the hospital. It wasn't for several weeks that they found out what made the difference. What did that teacher say to you? She said, all I did was teach him nouns and adverbs. The little boy looked at the doctors and nurses and said, well, I figured they would never send someone to teach nouns and adverbs to somebody who's going to die. And so I knew I must be going to be one that was going to make it. There's the power of hope. Hope in an otherwise incredibly dark place. What is the power of hope for us spiritually? And how do we understand it? Well, the story of Jonah that Jesus points back to is actually all about Hope. And so this morning, we want to learn together how Jonah points us to Christ in a way that he is a sign of hope for those who have eyes to see. Interestingly enough, uh, the sign of Jonah, Jesus will use as condemnation and his judgment. And yet we can take it this morning in a way that will help point us to the ultimate hope we would have in Christ. It's really a reminder, even of Jeremiah 29:11. A statement that God says to his covenant people, he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah ministered in a hopeless and dark time. Captivity had already begun. Uh, They were being assaulted then by the Babylonians. There came a one point in the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah goes and he purchases back all of his family's property, which makes no sense. Because the city is under siege, he's buying property out there that the enemy's camped on. Why would he buy this property back for his family? And he did it because he said there'll come a day when it's restored. And so Jeremiah, who even ministered in a very dark time, is a minister of hope. And so when he writes from God to us that I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope is profound. Jonah it's a profound image of hope for all those who have eyes to see. Now, I don't assume that all of us are fully up to speed on the story of Jonah. Um, it's obviously a very popular story, uh, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that everybody knows, uh, remembers quickly all the details. It's, very, it's just a few chapters. It's very short. I'm not going to go into all the details. I, I preached through the book of Jonah a number of years ago. Um, it's a delightful book and, and wonderful story. Uh, true, true um about this man but but i want to at least bring us up to speed on him and remind you of some things before we see how jesus uses his story and he is famously strange right he is the guy who ultimately gets swallowed by a great fish um it's translated in some places whale jesus references it as a great fish um did this happen absolutely uh there was a guy a lobster fisherman was just swallowed by a baleen whale a few years ago Um, and found himself in utter darkness and then was spit out by this whale. There's a story from the late 1800s. There's claims of a man who was was swallowed and lived in a whale for 36 hours. This is what I know and what I believe. I believe what the Bible says is true. I believe that it's miraculous. But Jonah was swallowed by this great fish. And uh, three days and nights he's in the belly of this great fish. And so let's just bring it up up to speed. The story starts with this guy. He's a prophet. His name's Jonah. Uh, He's prophesying in a difficult time. Difficult in this sense. No one in Israel is listening to him. Every mom in this room can can understand those moments. Um, Nobody is listening. (laughs) You're giving direction. And nobody seems to have ears to hear. And that's Jonah's job. Doesn't that sound like a great job? I want you to go preach to people that will never listen to you. That sounds like fun uh jonah's preaching nobody's listening it's in a difficult time and so then god tells jonah to do something and and here he's a prophet the word of the lord jonah 1 1 through 3 says the word of the lord came to jonah the son of amittai saying arise go to nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me but jonah rose to flee to tarshish from the presence of the lord he went down to joppa found a ship going to tarshish so he paid his fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, for Jonah to be identified as a prophet is important for us. Prophets are people who hear direct information from God. In fact, the test in the Old Testament, whether a, guy was a prophet was true or false, was simply this. If he said something was going to happen, if it didn't come to happen, he was a false prophet kill him, Stunned him to death. If it came to true came to pass, and it's true because only God knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, And so Jonah, to be a prophet, means he's getting direct revelation from God, and then it was his job to preach it. The closest we can come to that today is when anyone gives a Bible lesson, whether that's in Sunday school, children's church, uh, whether it's a sermon, preaching, a a Bible class, on the radio if you listen to it, the closest we can come is when someone opens the word of God, says this is what the Bible says, here's its truth. Now I'm I'm never getting, and I haven't gotten direct revelation from God, I, I don't walk out of my house and say God what do you want me to preach and I hear a voice, that's not the way this works. The authority is in the word, but prophets in the Old Testament are still receiving direct revelation. There are these conversational moments. God said this, and so that's what they're supposed to do. And so Jonah had been getting these messages from God, preaching to the children of Israel, and they're ignoring him. They're not listening, and now he gets a new message. Go to this other group of people. Go to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. They are the sworn enemies of Israel. Uh, Assyrians go down in history as some of the cruelest, most violent people that have ever walked the planet. And they hated, hated Israel and God's people. They were bent on destroying them. Um, And so here he is. Take my message. Go to these people and preach to them. Now Jonah runs the other way. He's a rebel. Um, Jonah says I'm not doing it I'm going to go to Tarshish now uh, if you were to picture this I'm sure you can in your mind's eye see the Mediterranean you can see roughly where Israel is Assyria is roughly where Turkey is Um, and so Jonah gets on a boat and Tarshish if you were looking at a map is at the far western point of the Mediterranean Sea it's essentially the last major city of the known world at that time You cannot get further from civilization than Tarshish. Jonah's saying, I will go to the ends of the earth before I'll go to these people. Now that seems stunning to us, at least to me. God said X, Jonah said I'm doing Y. And it's easy for my heart to condemn and judge Jonah. I mean, How would you feel if you actually heard a voice call out to you? And it's God. You're out. You go out in your backyard. You hear this massive crack of thunder. And all of a sudden, a voice calls out to you. Bob, go to New York and preach. Now, you're going to do one of a couple things. You're gonna call your local doctor and try to get an appointment. You're gonna to go to a psychologist, right? Or you're either gonna to go to New York or not. And it seems stunning that someone would hear God speak so clearly and yet ignore him. But that's exactly what Jenna does. And even when my heart is quick to condemn, Reality is the authority of the word is no less authoritative than the voice Jonah hears and how frequently, how often I'll read the text of scripture and the Bible will tell me to do something and I don't want to do it. I'm sure I'm the only one in this room. And Jonah says, I'm not doing it. And so Jonah gets out there, he's on the sea. Um, Jonah's at great rest. (laughs) You know, I can only imagine when Jonah decides I'm not going to obey God and he goes down to the to the seaport and he's trying to catch a boat and it's just amazing that there's a boat there headed to Tarshish isn't that amazing how do you think Jonah interpreted those circumstances if he was anything like us he said see that wasn't God's voice that told me to go to Nineveh look at how God has incredibly provided a boat to Tarshish clearly that's what God wants me to do because we are prone to read the circumstances of our life to always agree with what our sin wants to do that's how we operate we even twist the text of scripture when paul says pray that there would be an effective open door of ministry for me and so we pray things like god give me an open door what no one wants to do is read that passage in context because where paul was asking for an effective open door of ministry they were imprisoning it and beating him In other words, it was horrible. We pray things like pray for an open door, meaning it should be easy. Rarely is following God easy. And we are prone to interpret the circumstances of life to agree with what our sin already wants, rather than when the word clearly tells us to do something else. And so Jonah gets on the boat, he's on the boat, God sends a storm. These sailors are terrified. They, they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're a superstitious bunch. So they're trying to figure out, they, as sailors would be prone to do, someone aboard is bad luck. And so who's bad luck? They cast lots. The lot falls to Jonah. And they figure Jonah's the problem. Jonah's like, you're right. I am the problem. I'm running from God. Here's the, here's the answer. Throw me overboard. They don't want to do it because he's a prophet of God. He says, no, throw me overboard. They throw him overboard. The ocean goes calm. And then we come, Jonah 117. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but just apologetics. People say, well, how long is three days, three nights? Jesus is going to point back to this. Jesus is killed on Friday. He resurrects on Sunday. The answer is actually relatively simple. Hebrew calendarization, the way Hebrews mark time is not the way we mark time. They mark time as any part of a day is that day, is a whole day. Any part of a day. So, for example, Jesus to be killed on Friday, that's one day. For him to be in the tomb on Saturday is day two. For him to not resurrect till after dawn on Sunday is day three, three days. And so how long was Jonah in the whale? It could have been as as briefly as 36 hours. But that's a long, I guess we can agree this way, a lot longer than you'd want to be in the belly of a fish. And a whole lot longer than I want to be in the belly of a fish. Years and years ago, I was at a church and I was an intern and we did a fall harvest party for kids. We said you had to dress up as a Bible character. So I dressed up as Jonah. At the time, I was not as hairless as I am now. So I put on a bald cap, painted my whole self white like I'd been bleached by the stomach acids of a whale, hung seaweed over me, and put a Hebrew sign, repent or die. All the children were terrified. It was a golden moment. Um, we don't know the full effects on Jonah's physical body. This lobster fisherman that was swallowed by a bailing whale was bruised over his entire body and um, was spit out briefly thereafter. I don't know if you saw this uh, on the news this past week. A two-year-old in Africa was half-swallowed by hippo and spit out because of a brave person coming and throwing rocks at this hippo. The sailor that supposedly was swallowed by a whale in the late 1800s, supposedly his skin was bleached and forever uh, turned a yellowish color and he lost his hair. We don't know the full physical effects that happened to Jonah, but here Jonah's in the belly of this great fish. So Jonah prays to God. It's a wonderful prayer of repentance in the book of Jonah. Ask God to deliver him. And so God has the fish uh, swim Jonah back to the shore, spit him up on shore, and Jonah comes out. And God, Jonah wants to know, well, God, what do you want me to do now? <laughs> Spoiler alert, the same thing I told you to do before. <laughs> go to Nineveh. So now Jonah, of course, is repentant, and Jonah goes into Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That number 40 shows up throughout the Bible so many times as a season of testing, Right? Uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Moses' life can be split into 40s, 40 in Egypt, 40 out shepherding, 40 with the Israel, nation of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is out 40 days uh, being tempted of Satan. In 40 days, he says that God is going to overthrow Nineveh. And Nineveh repents. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's just an amazing moment. The whole city is saved. The king says, uh, let's fast and pray. We don't know if perhaps this God will deliver us, perhaps this God will forgive us. And as the story goes, the whole city turns to God. Nineveh is a massive city. It was said that you could drive chariots on top of the walls around the city. It's a powerhouse. It would be like someone going to Las Vegas and preaching, walking through the city, literally in your sermon. Jonah's sermon is is repent or die. That's the sermon. Uh, There's not a lot of exposition here. Uh, Jesus, when he will reference it, there seems to be, there seems to have been at least some content from Jonah where Jonah referenced having been swallowed by this great fish and sent to them. The Ninevites apparently had some comprehension of what Jonah had gone through to be there. But it would be like somebody, just me getting on a plane today, flying to Vegas, and all of a sudden you're starting to hear on the news something is happening in Vegas. Suddenly prostitution is no longer legalized. Gambling is no longer legalized. Uh, Casinos are shutting down. Uh, people are finding places to live and to eat and to work and uh, people that have been dealt with unjustly and people that have suffered harm and people that have been trafficked are, are being rescued. And you'd be like, what is going on? It's called revival. It's called life from death. That's what this would have been like. And so it's just this uh, absolutely stunning moment that happens in Nineveh. You have this huge gap, history historically, you have this massive gap. It's like when the the army of Egypt is swallowed by the Red Sea. Uh, Historians can track what Egypt does and how Egypt is this warmongering nation conquering those around them. And then you have a gap of an entire generation where they're nothing but peaceful. And historians have always, well, what happened? Why were they so peaceful for a generation? We know their whole army was wiped out. It's hard to wage war when you don't have an army. Guess what happened with the Assyrians? Same thing. There's this lengthy gap. Why? Because the king and the entire capital city are saved. It's mind-blowing to us. The whole story of Jonah seems fantastic. You know what's easier for me to believe? It's easier for me to believe Jonah and the fish than an entire city being rescued. What's the greater miracle? And so it's just a shocking moment of Revival. And so we have this amazing story, a strange and beautiful story. It has such vivid imagery. This giant fish, this this worn prophet, a simple sermon, mass revival, and great mercy. And the question for us this morning, here at Christmas time, is how does this point to Jesus? And even more to the point, how can this be a sign of hope here at Christmas? And so then that takes us to the New Testament. Uh, and it's a sign for the times, and and so when we come to it here with Jesus, the first thing I just want to ask is: this a good sign or is this a bad sign? That is a photo taken on the ground at the bombing of Nagasaki. Was that a good sign or a bad sign? Well, to be completely frank, it depends on which side you're on, doesn't it? Uh, if you were on the Japanese side, it was a terrible sign to see that mushroom cloud in the distance was going to mean absolute certain death, a horrific suffering. I think even as the nation who dropped the bomb, we hope that there's no nuclear bomb that's ever dropped anywhere ever again. And yet for the allies, it meant victory. It meant no one else was going to have to go and die. It meant the war was going to be over. And so some things can happen that, that are both. They're both good and bad, and it all depends on who's looking at the sign it depends on who sees it and who witnesses it and how it interacts with you and the sign of jonah that jesus is going to say is that it's exactly it's a good and a bad sign it, it's essentially asking who which side of it are you on and that's the way jesus is going to use it the gospels are essentially long sermons really long sermons that all conclude with the resurrection of christ And then, what should we do since then? They all characterize the life of Christ. In the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, they both use this same sign of Jonah. Uh, And so, as they're writing their sermons, they're picking out from Jesus's different encounters his healing encounters, his miracles, his ministry, his sermons, and they put them in in different ways to make their point. And so, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not biographies, they're sermons with illustrations. Well, both Matthew and Luke use specifically the illustration of Jesus having this conversation where he says, here's the sign of Jonah. Mark doesn't use that phrasing, but he uses identical phrasing. So all three of them say this, a wicked and perverse generation looks for a sign. And then Matthew and Luke follow up with saying, this is the only one they're going to get the sign of Jonah. And so what that tells us, first of all, is that Jesus would have said this a lot, a lot. When you read, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's not the only time Jesus preached that sermon. Luke pulls out elements of it at different time, times in the timeline of Jesus' life. John does, Mark does. And so what that tells us is that Jesus preached lots of the same sermons multiple times in different places to, this, to different crowds. And so his disciples would have heard some things over and over again. This sign of Jonah then is one of those that it shows up the earliest days of Jesus' ministry and in the later days of Jesus' ministry so that Jesus frequently was saying the only sign this generation is going to get is the sign of Jonah. It was common. It was a point that he made frequently. It shows up early in his ministry in Matthew because it falls in Matthew 12 and is this whole uh, flow from Matthew 11 to 12 about John the Baptist and signs and miracles and whose heart is right and whose heart is good or bad. In Matthew he will use it right after he heals a man. In Luke 11 he uses it right after he heals a man who's mute and demon possessed. Jesus casts out this demon Uh, heals this man who before could not speak. Now he's set free to be able to speak. And the religious leaders, they they accuse him of casting the demon out by the power of Satan. Like that makes a lick of sense. Satan and his demons are running around and some of his demons are possessing people. Jesus, they bring this guy. He can't talk. He has a demon. Jesus casts the demon out of him. The guy starts talking. And over here, high priest so-and-so says, oh, I better use the power of Satan to do that. Because that's what Satan likes to do, destroy his own progress. And it makes no sense. And they accuse Jesus of this, and and, and so they look at Jesus and they say, you know what, prove who you are. Give us a sign from heaven. And Jesus looks at him and says, the only sign this wicked and perverse generation is going to get is the sign of Jonah. Even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Matthew 12, it's very similar, except this time it's a deaf man who's also demon-possessed. And it's specifically said to the scribes and Pharisees. I said it a moment moment ago, what's really interesting, where we're going to camp this morning, is the flow from Matthew 11 through Matthew 12 that leads to this moment. And it can really help us to understand in an even greater way what's happening. So if you go back into Matthew 11, right at the start, so I'm going to read these few verses here at the beginning of Matthew 11. This will help us to get the flow. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison, now this is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. He would have known Jesus growing up. He's lived out in the wilderness. This is the guy who's eating locusts and honey and dressing in camel's hair. He is the classic prophet-looking guy. He's coming and he's preaching repentance. He's baptizing people. He's having it out with the scribes and Pharisees. He's arguing with them. They come down at one point and say, baptize us, John. And John says, bring me fruits of repentance, then I'll baptize you. And so he's at odds with them. He gets imprisoned. Jesus is now, his ministry has now fully begun. John has baptized him. Jesus is out preaching. John the Baptist is in prison. He's a believer. There's no question And John the Baptist is scared. He starts questioning, and he's afraid. And in his fear, John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Having just recently finished Job, I love this moment. Because you can believe in Christ and be saved, and have seasons that are very dark and difficult. And here, John the Baptist is in prison, and he just he just wants to make sure. And I love how Jesus responds to him. So, so before you look, right? So, as soon as I said that, some of you go, hmm, "You better read the Bible." We follow along. I love the fact. Bring your Bibles. Follow along. Yes, but just a minute. What if you were to answer, how do you think Jesus is going to respond to John the Baptist? Sometimes I wish I hadn't been raised in church. Because sometimes, sometimes in these kinds of moments, knowing the end of the story doesn't help me so much. Because if I I pause and I'm real honest, how I feel like God sees me when I'm struggling is that he's frustrated and irritated with me. That he's annoyed by me. Okay, Steve, let me tell you again and show you again how I love you. That's how I feel. And so if I were to say John the Baptist who was in his mother's womb, Holy Spirit comes on him and leaps in his mother's womb when Mary shows up pregnant. Remember that? John the Baptist raised by godly parents. John the Baptist, the cousin of the Messiah. John the Baptist who would have heard over and over and over and over again the stories and about the star and the shepherds and, and, and Jesus and Mary of the Virgin and the whole nine yards he's in prison. He's like, are you the one? And if I'm honest, if I'm honest and I, and I forget for a moment how I know the story's going to go, I think how Jesus is going to respond is somewhat sarcastically, hello, cousin John. You already know. Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, Lest you think and are tempted to think still that that is a hard answer. It's not. What Jesus has just done is given all these illustrations and it helps us. Did Jesus come to heal everybody? No, he didn't. There are multiple times Jesus shows up and he'll only heal one or two people. He goes to the pool of Bethsaida and heals one guy. Jesus didn't come to heal everyone physically. Jesus didn't come to make every leper whole, every blind man see, every deaf person hear, every lame person walk. He didn't even come to cast the demons out of every single person. Why did he do these things? All of these things point to the reality of what happens spiritually. You are spiritually blind and he can make you see. You're spiritually deaf and he can make you hear. You can't walk or breathe, you're dead in the tomb. He comes that you might have life. And every one of these power moments illustrate how Jesus has ultimate power over the natural earth. This is why he calms the sea when it's a storm. He has power over spiritual realm. This is why he can cast out demons and send them away. He has has power over the physical realm. He can heal the blind and the deaf and the lame and the leper. There is nothing that is beyond the power of God resting in and through him working as the Messiah. But all of it is for what? It's for the truth of the glory of God you're a sinner, you're dying, you need Jesus. And that is what's offensive to people. And that's why he finishes with that statement, uh, blessed are those who are not offended by me. You see, if all Jesus did was come to be a good teacher of moral principles and heal blind people, who can get mad at him? But when he says... You are wicked, and you need to take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself, find life in me. Repent of your sin and believe in me. That ticks people off. Nobody wants to hear how bad they are. And so when Jesus sends this message back to John, John would have gotten it immediately, because John knew exactly what it was like to have people offended by what he was saying. He had preached and made all kinds of people mad. He had made them so mad, he's in prison for it. And so this is confirmation. Unless we think then that Jesus is still irritated with John the Baptist, Jesus goes on a lengthy, and we don't have time this morning, but he goes on a lengthy section from that point on to extol and praise the ministry of John the Baptist, that he's the greatest of the prophets, because he was making way for the Messiah. And so he brings this, starts to bring this contrast though. He finishes talking about how wonderful John the Baptist is. And then he begins to contrast John the Baptist with all the wickedness that he's confronting. So look in Matthew 11, verse 20. I want you to see this. So John the Baptist is a believer. Jesus has comforted him. And then Jesus has extolled him and said, he's a great prophet. He follows me. Now let me contrast it. It's like Jesus is saying, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now he's literally illustrating people that are offended. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And so we have this stunning contrast. All of this theme then that is developing in Matthew 11 that will extend through Matthew 12 is this. People who believe in me embrace the signs of hope that Jesus brings. People who resist the truth of Jesus are judged by the signs that Jesus does. It comes to its ultimate culminating moment in Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 42, which is where we're at this morning. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So these same signs that were good enough for John the Baptist, good enough for anyone who believed in Jesus and was not offended would have been good enough for Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, and Gomorrah. It's not good enough for these guys. Because what really determines if the sign is good or bad is the heart. The defining difference between John the Baptist, Nineveh, the Queen of Sheba, the defining difference is they weren't offended by the truth. Nineveh repents because they're not offended by being told they're evil. John the Baptist isn't offended because because it doesn't bother him to recognize he needs a Messiah. He's not enough. The greatest prophet, he's not enough. Sheba is not offended because she comes seeking for wisdom and finds it in Solomon's God. But these guys, Capernaum, Bethsaida, the scribes and the Pharisees, They're offended, and so the signs aren't enough for them. Jesus really unpacks it all the way through Matthew 11 and 12. I'll just give you the flyover. Those that aren't offended by Jesus are repentant people. Repentance. (laughs) Repentance is that you see that you're, you're sin, and it's not just you see sin as something you do. You see sin as who you are. I lie because I'm a liar. I steal because I'm a thief. It's who I am. And repentance is recognizing who you are and what the Bible says about you is true. What the Bible says about me is true. And so I'm not dealing with anybody. I'm not dealing with some other prosecutor. I'm not dealing with with somebody else. I'm not dealing with a spouse, a friend, a neighbor, a child, a parent who's saying you're bad or you've done this. The Bible says that I'm a sinner. And so repentance is seeing that I'm a sinner and turning from it. And, and when we say turn from it, we don't mean that you never sin again, but we mean you say I'm turning from that to be ruled by Jesus. And I, as, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to be ruled by that sin anymore. I'm not going back to that. I'm following a new master. Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. One way to see who are the people that are offended by Jesus. In other words, who are the people that are not blessed by Him, but instead are judged by Him? The difference is, are you repentant or not? Then those that are not offended by Jesus find rest in Him. I love that. It's a beautiful moment when He tells people to come unto me, ye that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You see, Jesus recognizes us in our sinful condition and it's out of a pity, it's out of compassion, it's out of a heart of love and affection. And he looks at us and and it's he knows that we're in bondage. He's telling us we're in bondage, but he doesn't want to leave us in bondage. He knows that the weight of sin is heavy upon us. Do you know what the greatest threat to my home is? The greatest threat to my home is not politicians, it's not education. It's it, it's it's not. Neighbors, it's not a guy in a panel van giving out candy. You know the greatest threat in my home is my sinful heart. All too often, we think the greatest threats in our lives come from without, but the Bible's actually really clear the greatest threat is within, and we are in bondage and sin, and Jesus says, "Come and find rest." in me. To rest in Jesus is to recognize I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. I'm not holy enough. I can't get it together enough. I need to be ruled and led by Jesus. And he's not a vicious vindictive ruler and leader. He is patient and he is humble and he is lowly and he is kind and he is meek to me. He is, as we learned a few weeks ago, a shepherd to my soul. My sin is an evil master. My savior is a righteous kind master. Those who are offended by Jesus are those that, that they don't want to be rest. They don't want to find rest in Jesus. Those not offended by by Jesus see him as God. As God, not just a good teacher, not just a moral man, not just a kind man, not just a healer, but as God. Jesus comes, he's born of a virgin, he is God robed in flesh. He is God. He is fully God, fully man. This is who Jesus is. This is offensive to people. And then those not offended by Jesus are transformed from the inside out. It's not, you don't get cleaned up to take a bath. You don't don't stop sinning to get rescued. Jesus rescues you while you're still in your sin. He saves you when you're not worthy. I I love it and I... (laughs) I've shared this, but it's like my favorite illustration of salvation. I'll just be honest with you. I'm sorry. As long as I'm around, you're going to have to endure it. But I love the Galatians picture of adoption. I love it. It's my favorite picture of salvation. Because, because if, if you know anything about adoption, you've got orphanages, and you'll have these days where they have couples come, and the couples are considering adoption, they'll go through. And what do you do with those kids? If you were in an adoption orphanage and you had all these couples come to look at kids, what would you do with the kids? Wouldn't you wash them up, like wash off all the like peanut butter jelly off their faces, get them cleaned up, put on the best clothes that they had, tell them to be on their best behavior? Why? Because nobody wants the, the dirty, filthy, out-of-control, obnoxious kid, right? And when God comes and he says he adopts us, you and I are not these sweet, cherubic-faced, beautiful little babies. We're homicidal little maniacs that slaughtered his son. And he says, I want that one. And he brings us in. And he makes us his own. And he transforms us. He He puts his spirit in us, and he begins, he immediately, immediately you are saved. And then he begins this process of changing you from the inside. It's a lifelong process from the inside out. This is offensive to people. John the Baptist asked, Is Jesus the one? And so Jesus lists out those signs that he did. I read that to you. I've healed the blind and the deaf and the lame, and I've raised people from the dead. Well, he's done all those same signs, and the scribes and Pharisees don't believe, and the scribes and Pharisees ask for another sign. Teacher, verse 30, we wish to see a sign from you. Like, you read that and you're like, what is their major malfunction? Now, why does Jesus respond so kindly to John the Baptist and so condemning towards these guys? Because the heart that's asking it is radically different. They're asking for something that should have been obvious. John wanted to know. They want to know because they don't believe. And it's like like trying to prove the obvious to people. You know, science has recently proven some obvious things. Science has recently proven that cats ignore their owners. I think we already all knew that. Dogs think you own them. Cats think they own you, right? Science has proven this, and what they've done is they've looked back and they've realized that Humanity domesticated dogs. Cats domesticated themselves. And so they've never domesticated. They, and so they have learned cats, yes, they know their name. They recognize your voice. They just willfully choose not to obey you. But that's the obvious, right? Um, they have discovered that meetings make employees worse employees. Long meetings are annoying, irritating, and make you less productive. Science has actually now proven that they tracked companies who had lots of meetings versus companies that had relatively few meetings, and they found that employees were far happier and more productive the less meetings that they had. They felt like they sat through things that could have been an email. Why should I do this? Science has recently proven that pigs love mud. Shocking. 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 Uh, they have fewer sweat glands, and so they embrace mud. They love mud. Um, they're as happy as a pig in mud, right? It's the obvious. The scribes and Pharisees are asking for proof of what should have been obvious: Jesus is God. The stumbling block wasn't a blind person being healed, a deaf person being healed, a lame person. The stumbling block was Jesus telling them, you're a sinner, repent of your sin and follow me. That was their big problem. And so the difference then for the sign of Jonah or Jesus is do you have eyes to see? And so Jesus mentions two specific groups that he references here. And they are unlikely people. First of all, he talks about the Ninevites, right? He says, verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. These Ninevites, and and when Jesus does this, it's actually beautifully poetic, it's from the north to the south. And it's kind of a way of saying almost like the north to the south, the east to the west. Anybody that's been rescued is going to come and condemn you. But, but because are on the shore, it works better north to south. So the Syria was the powerful kingdom to the north of Israel. Sheba was the powerful kingdom, the southernmost part of what they were aware of, of the known world, really. The Ninevites, for them to rise up in judgment against them, the Assyrians are particularly noted for their cruelty in history. They would flay their captives alive. They would take the skins of their their captives, they would flay them, skin them, and then they would literally uh, use the skins to decorate the outside of their city walls. They did this frequently. It wasn't a one-off. They would take military soldiers, they would find out who their wives and children were, they would kill their wives and children in front of them, burn the bodies, then make the soldiers grind the bones, mix it with meal, and eat it as bread. That's the Assyrians. Uh, One guy, Tiglath-Pileser, would go and he would kill over 600 people, marking distance like we would mark a mile marker and create a pyramid of skulls all the way back to the capital city. Assyrians, none of them. They would perform mass amputations blinding people, cutting off arms and legs, and then keeping them from dying so that their slaves would hobble around on one leg or with one arm or blind to demonstrate their power. They were not ashamed of this. They were proud of this. We have these images that exist to this day because they literally decorated the capital city walls and the palace walls with their cruelty against their enemies. And God told Jonah, "Go preach to them." This isn't this isn't the same as saying, "Go preach to Las Vegas people that are just consumed." And you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This is like go preach to Vegas mixed, mixed with Berlin at the height of World War II, mixed with Tokyo at the height of World War II, mixed with the Taliban at the height of their cruelty. It, it's like mixed with the pagans uh, of of Germany. Back in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, it's every possible mixed with the, um, the the South American cultures who would perform infant sacrifice endlessly to try to get better crops. It's the most wicked, literally the most wicked ruling nation that we have history of. They make Nero look like a kindergartner, and God said, "Go preach to them." And Jonah went and preached. And the whole city repents. It is a stunning revival of incredibly wicked people. Their only exposure to truth is this very strange prophet preaching, repent or you're going to die. And it was enough. The Queen of Sheba was an incredibly wealthy queen, lived to the south. And she starts to hear stories about Solomon and his wisdom and um, his renown. And it was like, what is going on? And so she packs up this whole train of animals and wealth. And she treks from Sheba far north, hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to Solomon. And when she gets to Solomon, she sits down. She starts to hear from Solomon truth. And she, this powerful queen she's got all the wealth she needs she's got all the power she needs she's got all the authority she needs and her heart is moved and she begins to worship the god of solomon And so the people of Nineveh are exposed to the the story of the judgment of God imaged through Jonah. The queen of Sheba is exposed to the truth and the wisdom of God through Solomon, and it was enough for them to repent. The scribes and Pharisees have judgment and wisdom personified in Jesus, and it's not enough for them. The ability of people to stop their ears from hearing the truth of Christ is astounding to us. It's shocking then for Jesus to say that they're gonna rise up in judgment against these guys at the end of the day would have been incredibly offensive. First of all, they're Gentiles, which was just gonna tick these guys off like nobody's business. How dare these Gentiles judge us? On top of that, it's like literally the most wicked and, and then the most wealthy are gonna judge us. They thought of themselves as better than anyone else. And so to be told they would stand in judgment of them just would have made them angry. And so we have the offense of Jesus. Have you ever been tempted to think this? It would be easier for people to believe in Jesus if they could just see the miracles he did. I've actually had people tell me that before. Boy, if I could just see something, you know, if I saw him walk on the water, I would believe. If I saw this, I would believe. I, I would believe, and I would believe. And maybe you've been tempted that way. Man, if they could just see a miracle, then they would believe if they could just see how he made the lame walk, the blind, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. If they could just see the dead raised from the dead. Um, this idea has been capitalized by so many false teachers with their fake healing ministries, their healing gimmicks, their supposed stories of people coming back from the dead. The truth is this, lost people will always find a way to dismiss the wisdom and power of God instead of embrace it like the Queen of Sheba and the people of Nineveh. Jesus is telling us that one of the greatest barriers to repenting and believing is self-righteousness. It's, for him to use Nineveh and Sheba, it's like saying this. The biggest barrier to you getting saved, you scribes and Pharisees, you really religious people, and here we are in the buckle of the Bible belt. Everybody's religious down here. Everybody. The biggest barrier to you coming to Christ, like truly repenting and believing is not that you function like some homicidal serial killer, Ninevites. It's not even that you seem to have all this wealth and you don't need anything, Sheba. The biggest barrier to you repenting and believing is you don't think you're bad. You're self-righteous. They are the moral and religious leaders of their day. Everyone takes their cues from these guys. Their sense is that they are good and they are right and they are fine. And that's what's keeping them from humbling themselves before the wisdom and power of God. They're offended by the teaching of Jesus that they are sinners in need of a savior. Listen, there was no room for Jesus in the inn at Christmas. And there's no re- room for Jesus in the hearts of those that think they're already good. Jesus is not interesting and interested in coming and being a roommate with your sense of moral uprightness in your heart. He is only interested in coming into those who are willing and ready to recognize that they are sinners on their way to hell and they have nothing to offer. All we bring to our salvation is our sin looking to be cleansed. The biggest barrier is whether or not you see that you need him at all. And so he can be a sign of hope though. This sign of Jonah is given to them as judgment. All along of our way of our adversaries, we've been looking at Old Testament types of Christ. They give us ways to see and understand Jesus better here at Christmas. This one, though, it frankly seems fairly dark. But there is a flip side to this. There is a flip side to this. The Ninevites, they were this violent and lost people. They had power and wealth. They had slaves, and they're deeply feared. They're the dominant power of their day, conquering most of the, our modern day understanding of the Middle East. And then suddenly, suddenly, this strange dude comes walking into their city saying, repent or you're gonna die in 40 days. What hope would they have had? What hope that they would have would they have could they have even possibly dreamed of that they might be forgiven? And the king says, Let's repent, let's fast maybe, maybe God, this God will forgive us. What hope could they have had? They only had one hope. You know the hope they had? Jonah walking in front of them, that this is how God deals with people. That you can run from God, and you can rebel against him, you can hard your heart and say, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, God. But if there comes a point, if there comes a moment, and for some of you this morning, this morning may be this moment for you. We're like in the belly of a fish, and you realize, I can't run from God anymore. I won't run from God anymore. And Jonah cries out from the belly of the fish, God, would you forgive me? And God does, because he's kind, and he's loving, and he's merciful to those who would repent and believe. Their only hope that the Ninevites could have had was that maybe God will deal with us like we see him deal with this man that maybe this is a God who delights not just in bringing death, but actually delights in bringing life out of death. Because just like this man was dead in the fish, we are dead in our sins. Maybe he will give us life like he gave him life. Just like Jesus was dead in the tomb and he came forth in life, maybe Jesus will give me life. And so suddenly, for those who would have eyes to see, the sign of Jonah becomes a sign of hope. You know, I don't know where you're at this morning spiritually. I don't know what discouragements you're facing, what fears, what hurts, what darkness. But I know this, hope matters only when things are really dark. John the Baptist is facing death and he needs to make sure Jesus is the one. The Ninevites take comfort because they know this is a God who can bring life out of death. Jesus truly was born to die. Born to die for your sins and mine. Born to die so that he could pay all that was required. Born to die that he might also raise again. Christmas is actually all about hope. Because it reminds us Jesus was born. He would die, but he would also raise again to life. And if God has raised him from the dead... He surely can raise you from your sinful death to life and he surely will raise you once again in resurrection. During the 30 years war in the 17th century, there's this German pastor, Paul Gerhardt. His family, they're forced to flee from their home. They're run away, they're refugees. One night they're staying in a small village inn. They're homeless, they're afraid. They, they've lost all their belongings. And his wife broke down and just began despairing and crying, weeping and sobbing. And so he comforted her, he put his arm around her and he began to try to remind her of scripture promises about how God meets our needs and how God cares for us and God will take care of us. And he did what a good husband does, he comforts his wife. She collapsed into bed and asleep in her weariness, he went out in the garden and then he fell apart. He began to break down, he began to weep. Almost uncontrollably, he felt like he would come to the darkest hour. He had said truth to her that his own heart was then struggling to believe. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had to say truth? You don't feel. But you know it's true. He's doing that. And as he began to do that and cry out to God, he felt his burden begin to lift. He began to sense anew the presence of God. He took his pen and he then wrote a hymn. Give to the winds thy fears. Hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up your head. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait his time, so shall the night soon end in joyous day. The reality is this. He is a sign of hope for those who have eyes to see. I love how G.K. Chesterton put it, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as it matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. Jonah was hopeless in the belly of a fish and he cried to God and God delivered him. Jesus said you only have the sign of Jonah and he's telling it to condemn them but for those of us who believe it's hope because I know this Jesus was born at Christmas he died at Easter but he rose again so no matter how dark the night my heart rejoices in hope and I would call to all of you to repent and believe that you might know the hope of Christmas in the darkest of night God sent the star of his son, the morning star, to break afresh and anew upon us and save us from our sins. Celebrate Christmas in hope this year, knowing that he is the author of the last chapter and it ends with resurrection.